hour sermon for you that I have to do in 25 minutes. So we're just going to dive right into it, okay? The first thing that you need to know, each and every one of you, whether you grew up in church or whether this is your first time stepping into a church, that each and every one of us has inherited from Adam in the garden a broken relationship with God. For now, all these notes, if you want to put down, we're not going to show the outline yet, but you can put this under the first section if that helps know where to write stuff down. We're not going to show that outline yet. But we need to dive in and just start out with the fact that each and every one of us has inherited from Adam a broken relationship with God. We haven't just inherited sin from Adam. We have inherited that. And we haven't just inherited uh, a cursed world from Adam, although we've inherited that too. Another thing that Romans chapter 5, verse 12 tells us is that because Adam sinned in the garden, he was then separated from God. And every single person that has been born since then, being a physical descendant of Adam, is also not only also a sinful person, but a person who has been separated from God. We must recognize that breaking of relationship that occurred with Adam in the garden. If we were to look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, we would see specifically that the garden that God made was more than just a nice place to give as a gift for Adam and Eve. It was also the place where God himself was dwelling. The garden was the dwelling place of God. Genesis 3.8 specifically says that God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. This was the place where he resided. He wasn't separated. He wasn't distant. The garden was more than just a gift to two perfect people. It was also the dwelling place of God himself. We have to understand the Garden of Eden as the Garden of the Lord. This is how the Old Testament actually describes the Garden of Eden. They call it that. In Isaiah chapter 51, verse 3, we see that the Garden is described as the Garden of the Lord. We see also in Ezekiel chapter 31, verse 9, that the Garden of Eden is called the Garden of God. It wasn't just something given to Adam and Eve. It was also a place that God had made for himself, a place where he could dwell with his people. But then sin got in the way. Because the garden was good and because God was a holy God, once Adam and Eve had sinned, the punishment of that was not just that they couldn't enjoy this resort of the garden itself, but that they couldn't be in the place where God dwelled. That God's dwelling place was holy, and because Adam had sinned, they were now also unholy, and they had to be taken out of the presence of God. That's the emphasis. That's the importance of Adam, Eve, Adam and Eve going out of the garden. It's that they were going out from the presence of God, and that God had to guard it. He had to put cherubim at the entrance of that garden to make sure that sinful, unholy people could not be in the place where he dwelled and where they couldn't have access to the tree of life. We have to understand that because Adam sinned, we inherited his sinfulness. 
And because Adam has a broken relationship with God, we also inherit that same separation. And if we were to go to Exodus, if we were to look at God leading his people, the the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, this chosen people that God had made for himself, whom he had delivered out of slavery in Egypt, he's bringing them to this promised land while they're wandering in the desert. We find that God is going to choose in these books of the Bible, in in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, he is going to make a mobile garden. He's going to say that I am going to, in a small way, return and be present with you. God is saying that he's going to go before his people. He's going to make his presence known to his people. And he's going to do so by having them create this tent, this tabernacle, that is going to serve as a mobile garden. That's how we should also understand the tabernacle. The tabernacle was like the mobile garden. It was the mobile dwelling place that would be picked up and assembled from place to place as God was leading his people. In fact, in Scripture, we see many parallels between the garden and the tabernacle. We have a chart that actually breaks down some of these similarities For example, in the garden, we see that God's dwelling place, this sanctuary, this temple, so to speak, of the garden where God was, had to be guarded by cherubim. In the same way, we see that in the temple or in the tabernacle, over the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, that box made of gold was also being guarded by these cherubim. In the same way, in the garden, we have the tree of life that is in the middle of the garden. The menorah is the symbol of the tree of life. That's the meaning of the menorah. That's how it's described. It's it's described as a tree that has these branches from which light comes. Light was symbolic of life. And so if you've ever wondered why the Jewish people, especially around Hanukkah, make a big deal about the menorah, That's what the menorah means. It is in reference to the tree of life. The menorah existed within the Holy of Holies as one of the pieces of decoration. It's a reminder of what the people used to have in Adam when they were in God's dwelling place. Not only that, but we also see that there is knowledge of good and evil in the tabernacle, just as there was in the garden. In the garden, there was the tree and the command that came with the tree that brought knowledge of good and evil. But in the Ark of the Covenant itself, what was actually within that box, God's presence was hovering over it like a throne. But inside the box, we see that actually the tablets of the Ten Commandments are in that box in the Holy of Holies. So there's these parallels that are existing between the garden where God used to dwell, and now this tabernacle where God used to dwell. So much so that the tabernacle is actually called the tent of meeting. It was a place where Moses would go, and it says that Moses would talk to God in the tent of meeting as if one talks to a friend. The Shekinah glory of God's presence would make itself known in this tabernacle. That word Shekinah refers to the shining glory of God's presence. Almost like the residue 
or, or the evidence of God's glory being present somewhere. That's what would exist in the tabernacle. It wasn't just meant as like this holy site or this place where rituals would happen. The tabernacle was understood as the place where God dwelled. And it was a reminder to the wandering people of where God used to dwell in the Garden of Eden. These are just a few of the main parallels. There's other parallels. For example, if you look at the instructions of the decorations that are given of the tapestries of the tabernacle, you will see that there are garden designs that are being put into the tapestry, especially the example of pomegranates being woven into the tapestries of the tabernacle. When God gives commands to the Levites as priests of the tabernacle to take care of the tabernacle and to function over it, the wording that God uses for the Levite priests is identical to the command that God gives to Adam to serve and to subdue over all of creation. So the parallels are many, and it's also why Genesis is combined with Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy as books of the law. We don't often associate Genesis as being a book of the law. We see it as science and history, which it is. Genesis can be trusted for science and history. But it was written by Moses as part of the Torah, part of the Hebrew word for law, so that people could have context as to why they were to perform these commands. So they could have context as to why God was having them design his dwelling place in such a specific way. So that they could look at the tabernacle, they could see God's presence there, and they could be reminded of the relationship that they used to have with God when they were dwelling with him in the garden. That tabernacle, that tent of meeting, was the way by which God's people would have access to God. It's the way that God, in a small, mobile way, would dwell with his people despite their sinfulness. But there's an element of the tabernacle so far that we're missing. Because it wasn't just good enough for God's people to create this tent that reminded them of the garden. And it wasn't just enough for God to have his people make this tent where he would dwell in the Ark of the Covenant with his Shekinah glory. That alone, building the tent doesn't mean that God's people had access to God. Because we've all seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. We know what happens when you try to look into the place where God dwells. We still have the problem of what we inherited from Adam. We still have the problem of sin. And we still have the problem of a broken relationship with God because of that sin. Meaning that even if God's people were to construct this tabernacle, and even if God's presence was to come down and dwell in the tabernacle, that doesn't mean that God's people could be in the presence of it. In fact, if you tried, you would die. They would have to tie a rope around the priest's foot to drag him out in case he tried to go in God's presence in an unworthy manner because in Adam, we all inherit sin. Some kind of restoration of relationship had to be made in order for God's people to have access to his dwelling place in the tabernacle. 
And it's for that reason in Leviticus chapter 16 that God gives instructions for atonement. Atonement is just an Old Testament biblical word that means a restoring of relationship. And we can actually take it to that slide as well, that atonement means restoring of relationship, and it is parallel. It is the same concept as the word reconciliation that we see in the New Testament. So when you see atonement in the Old Testament, think reconciliation. When you read reconciliation in the New Testament, think atonement. It's the same thing, and both words are referring to the need that all of us have because of our sin to have a restored relationship with God. It's impossible to be in the dwelling place of God, whether it's in the garden or whether it's in the tabernacle, without having a restored relationship with him. And because of that, we can go back to Leviticus 16. We see that the way that God allowed for that to happen as a shadow, as a copy, as an imperfect form of a larger plan was to have what's called the Lamb of Atonement. This lamb without blemish, without spot, on which the sins of the people, which they had inherited from Adam, would be put on this innocent lamb. God would then look at the lamb as if he was looking at the sins of the people. And then the priest would kill the lamb. And that would satisfy, that would represent the punishment that God desires and intends for our sinfulness. And by looking at the lamb as the substitute, for the punishment that the people deserve for their sin, there would, as a result, be atonement. There would be reconciliation. There would now be access to God through the high priest who would represent God's people, who would then be able to go into the dwelling place of God with this menorah tree of life and this knowledge of good and evil, the law, where God's presence himself dwelled. So we need two things in order to be in the presence of God. Number one, we need a temple. And number two, we need a sacrifice to give us access to that temple. And I call it temple. We're using tabernacle and temple interchangeably because the temple that was built by Solomon, the temple that was rebuilt by Ezra, the temple was the permanent tabernacle structure. That's what the temple was. It was the same dimensions. It was the same design. It was the same purpose, although it was built uh, permanently by Solomon in Jerusalem. Instead of being a mobile tent, it was now a stationary building of stone. And we have to connect the concept of the temple being the place where God dwelled, but also being the place where sacrifices were made. We have to combine those two. If the people wanted access to God, they would look to the tabernacle or they would look to the temple. They would say, that's where God dwells. That's specifically where the Shekinah glory of God is choosing to dwell. And that is where we have to go through our high priest representative in order to make a sacrifice to atone or reconcile our own sinfulness to have access with God in his dwelling place there. Let me show you a couple of verses from the Psalms that illustrate the fact that the temple is the dwelling place of God. Remember, temple is just permanent tabernacle. 
They had the same function. They were used in the same way, but the temple was permanent in Jerusalem. Sometimes in the Old Testament, you'll read the word Zion. Zion is just in reference to the hill that the temple is built upon. In fact, it actually, Zion is actually combining the, the two hills where Jerusalem, the city, is built and the hill where the temple was built. Geographically, the temple was actually built on Mount Moriah. That's the geographic name of that hill. It's where Abraham sacrificed Isaac. But when you read the prophets in the Old Testament and they're referring to Zion, they are referring to the hills on which the city of Jerusalem and the temple exist. And with that in mind, look at how God describes his dwelling place in the temple. Why do you look with hatred, O many peaked mountains, at the mount, referring to the temple mount, that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. Pay specific attention to those two words that are being used in that verse of God desiring to dwell in this temple. Those two words of desiring and dwell are very important. We see this repeated in Psalm 132, verse 13. It says that for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired, there's that word again, he has desired it for his dwelling place. The point is that God, because we were separated from God in the garden because of our sin, he chose at specific times, it pleased him to make his presence known, to make his dwelling place, at first a tabernacle and then a temple. All of this matters because of what Paul is then going to say in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. We find in Colossians, as Paul is ending this hymn describing the person of Christ, we find in verse 19 that Paul quotes, he uses the very same vocabulary found in Psalm 68, found in Psalm 132, to describe where now God wants to dwell. Look in verse 19. It says that, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased or desired to dwell. Paul is making the point that before, God's dwelling place used to be in the garden, but we were separated from God in the garden because of our sin. Then God chose for his dwelling place to be in the tabernacle, the tent, but we could only get there through the atonement of a lamb. Then God chose to make his dwelling place the permanent temple in Jerusalem, but now the way that God has made his presence known is not in a tent, and it's not in a temple, it's in the person, Jesus Christ. Jesus is now that mobile tabernacle of the presence of God by which God makes his presence known to his people. Jesus is the cause. This is going to be our big idea for this morning. Jesus is the cause of our reconciliation. That just as he was the cause of creation, just as he was the cause of the church and the head of the church, he is also the very purpose or the very means by which God is restoring the separation that existed between him and sinful people born from Adam. That is being done specifically by Jesus 
And Jesus is accomplishing that in two ways. The first is our first heading, which we've been building up to this entire time, which is that Christ reconciles, number one, by being the temple. Jesus is now the place where God chooses to dwell. We see this actually described in John chapter 1, verse 14. That first point is Christ reconciles by being the temple. Sorry, I'm moving fast. But we see in John chapter 1, verse 14, that specifically it says that the Word became flesh and dwelt or made His dwelling among us. Another way that we could put this, I love this specific translation, you could say that He became flesh and pitched his tent among us. That Jesus is now that mobile tabernacle. He's the means by which God is moving about and leading his people, not in tapestry and in this mobile temple, but in an actual living and breathing person, the person of Jesus Christ. Quick clarification, do not mistake this to mean that Jesus was just a normal man, that God decided to possess or indwell as his dwelling place. Because remember our previous sermons, Jesus was in the beginning with God. In the beginning, Jesus was already around. He was already present with the Father. In John chapter 8, Jesus tells the Pharisees, before Abraham was born, I am. Ego ame, that same label that God uses for himself with Moses at the burning bush. Jesus wasn't just a normal man that was being possessed by God as his dwelling place. Jesus was the very incarnation of God. He was the very revelation of God, that God chose to take on human flesh and walk among us. Instead of dwelling in a tent, he was now going to personally dwell among us in the person of the God-man, Jesus Christ. 100% God, 100% man. Jesus even describes himself as the temple. He refers to the physical temple. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews are confused about it, but what they don't realize is that really Jesus is referring to his body. That Jesus Christ is now the temple because Jesus is where God makes his presence known. It's the way that God chooses to dwell amongst his people. And you might be asking yourself, wait a second, I thought the church was the temple of God. Well, no, the church is the body of Christ. And by being the body of Christ, we also function as the temple of God. But the only reason why we can be called the temple of God is because we are first understood to be the body of Christ here on earth. Indwelled by the Spirit of God, called to be the hands and feet of Jesus, here fulfilling his great commission, like what Eli and Harrison are going to be doing these next six months. Jesus is the place where God makes his presence known. And by making his presence known, by choosing to come down, even though we couldn't get up to God, he is beginning this work of reconciliation by making his dwelling place among us. But remember, just having a tabernacle isn't good enough. God simply having his presence be near his people is not enough. There needs to be reconciliation in order to be in God's presence. Jesus 
not only functions for reconciliation then as the temple, but we are also going to find in verse 20, our second outline point, that Jesus also functions as the sacrifice needed to be with God in that temple. That's our second outline point, that Christ also reconciles by being the sacrifice. If in verse 19, which by the way, it says the fullness of God dwells in Jesus, it never describes that for the tabernacle and it never describes that for the temple. It doesn't even describe that for the church. It's never described that the very fullness of God and his deity is dwelling these places. But it does say that the very fullness of God himself, the exact imprint of his nature, is dwelling within Jesus as the better temple, the perfect temple. It's no mistake even that even after Jesus came during his first coming, that in AD 70, just a few decades later, the physical temple would be destroyed. There's no need for it anymore. God gave the perfect temple in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the first way that he restores a relationship with us. That's the first way that he reconciles the broken relationship that we inherited from Adam. But the second way that we do that is by Christ also being that lamb of atonement, which is what we see in verse 20. And through him, just as creation was made through Jesus, Paul uses the same words to describe that reconciliation is coming through what he did, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Jesus is not just then the revealer of who God is. He is also the representative of who we are in our sinfulness. He was born as the perfect representation, the perfect revelation of God's holiness. But he died as a representation of your sinfulness. In my sinfulness, he functions as both the temple where God is pleased to dwell, but also the sacrifice by whom we have peace with God. That's what we mean by peace. Peace is the product of reconciliation. If you have a broken relationship with your spouse or with a loved one or with a sibling or with a coworker, and then all of a sudden there is a restoring of the relationship, you get to enjoy peace with that person as a result. Colossians chapter 1 verse 20 makes it clear that only by the blood of Jesus, meaning only by the sacrifice of Jesus, blood referring to his life, not mystical magic in the fluid, but in the power of the perfect life of Christ given as a representation for us, as a result of that we have peace. The theological word that we use for this is propitiation. The perfect life that Jesus lived was this propitiation, meaning that it was the very object on which God poured out his punishment that should be for your sin, including the sin that you committed this morning and the sin that you committed last night. Jesus, by giving his life, he is that lamb of atonement by which we have access into the garden or into the tabernacle. That's why Jesus calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. We have a few more verses we see in Luke chapter 1, verse 79. We see in the famous birth account of Jesus in Luke chapter 2. We see that his coming is described as one who will bring peace. That's referring to reconciliation. Not just world peace, not just lovey-dovey tranquility, but the peace that comes in a restored relationship with our creator. And that's why Jesus also says in John chapter 14 that he has come to leave peace with his people. 
Jesus is not just the cause of all creation. He's not just the cause of the church or the head of the church. He is the very means by which creation and the church are restored in a bettered relationship with God. And he does that by being the temple of God and the sacrifice of God for our sin. And this isn't just for us only, but even creation itself. In Romans chapter 8, creation also suffered a broken relationship with God as a result of sin. And it looks forward to, it eagerly awaits the day when through Jesus Christ, they also can receive a new birth, where creation can be restored and be regenerated in a new heavens and new earth, just as we have been regenerated in our second birth. In the first Adam, we inherited sinfulness and separation. But in the second Adam, uh, Jesus, we inherit access to God, and we inherit a relationship with him in his dwelling place. Not because you're a good person, but because he's a good person. Not because you come to church, but because you came to Jesus as the mediator between you and God. I want us to end by turning to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to look at this future hope that we have of having a restored relationship with our Creator. And it's only going to be because of God's presence being made known in the person of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus as the Lamb. We have to remember as Christians that we have hope in the cross, but we have hope in the cross because of the future hope that we have of actually being in the presence of our Creator. That someday we will see Him visibly, and someday we will be in His presence. In Revelation 21, starting in verse 22, describes that, and I want us to stand as I read this together. So please stand with me, and we'll close with this. Let's reflect on who Jesus is as the temple of God and the sacrifice for our sin. And because of him, this is the hope that we have someday. Look at how it describes us being in God's presence. It says in verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, God the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then... The angel showed me the river of the water of life, referring to the original garden. He showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's the access that we have promised to God someday. And all God's people said, Amen.
Please be seated, and we're now going to transition to our time of communion.